This Dharma Talk was presented at the Austin Zen Center in Austin, Texas. For more information, visit austinzencenter.org. Good morning. So this, um, this is our second week in our fall practice period where we are studying uh, Lojong, the practice of training the mind in cultivating compassion, training the mind uh, away from some of its usual ways, maybe, usual selfish, uh, self-concerned, small-minded, narrow, tight, restricting, fearful. (laughs) Sometimes uh, we get that way, especially when we are faced with difficulties, right? It's basic survival. We We all know this. When we're threatened by something, what happens? What happens to our blood? What happens to our muscles? Anyone? Contraction. Contraction. Right. Yeah. This is all very much uh, a well, well tuned to our survival. If it weren't that way, we probably wouldn't be here. <laughs> we would have been eaten by something else. However, we live in this uh, particular, the people in this space. I'm, I'm assuming you're all humans, <laughs> aliens here, but maybe, I don't know, maybe you're very good at hiding human clothing. But at least for us humans, uh, in the Buddhist uh, cosmology, we are very fortunate to be born into this realm, the human being realm, as opposed to the animal realm, or the hungry ghost realm, or the hell realm, or even the god realm, or the the, the, uh, the vengeful gods, or the, the titan, the titan realm of uh, jealous, the jealous god realm. The ones that aren't really truly gods, but are close, <laughs> so they get jealous of the gods. <laughs> now we're we're plain humans, which is actually quite a lovely place to be, even though it is the world of samsara. Uh, we have a chance in the human realm to be able to cultivate the qualities that lead to awakening, which are the qualities of compassion and wisdom. And this morning we chanted, as we do every Saturday, we chanted the hymn to the perfection of wisdom, which is a lovely verse. Uh, One thing I would like to mention to people, maybe uh, people don't usually know this, but that verse is a dedication, and so if you have the ability to, if you know it by heart, or even if you don't and you have it, you happen to be the uh, standing next to somebody who does have a copy of the chant, or you have the copy of the chant in front of you because you're the doan or the fukudo, the people who ring the bells and, and uh, the drum, you can put your hands in gasho because it is a dedication. It's like when we all put our hands in gasho and we do all Buddha's ten directions, we're dedicating. So it's, it's like a, we're in position of a prayer, of a wish, of an aspiration of sending out. Right, that's this, this gesture. It's also 
considered bringing wisdom and compassion together. But it's a, the hymn to the perfection of wisdom is a, uh, it's a hymn to the, you know, to the perfection of wisdom, to perfected, fully perfected wisdom, uh, which is in Buddhist terms, wisdom refers to not a conventional wisdom, but a deep wisdom into the nature of all being and all dharmas, the nature, the fundamental nature of reality. That's the perfection of life. And that fundamental reality, what is that? What is this absolute fundamental reality? Dennis, we're all connected. There you go. We're all connected. And the first thing you said? Emptiness. Emptiness. Shunyata. The emptiness of... Uh, clinging, of grasping, of delusion, of selfing, of making distinctions between self and other, us and them, this country, that country, right? It's the emptiness of that distinction making that we do as a means of our own survival in this conventional world. So the perfection of wisdom is the deep knowing that we are all connected and that everything that we experience is waves on an ocean. It's the coming together of causes and conditions temporarily and soon to vanish, to cease. That's the ultimate, the uh, the absolute uh, perfection of wisdom. And then we chant the Shosanyo Kichijo Dharani which is a magical incantation that is designed to remove hindrances to awakening. That's the intention of that Dharani, is to remove hindrances, the hindrances in our lives. Now, there is, we also, uh, every other week on Friday morning, we chant this other uh, passage that's a Dogen passage called the Ehe Koso Hotsugamon, which talks about, you know, it's kind of like a plea to the Buddhas to remove the obstacles to our awakening. Which is, I always thought was kind of strange. Why? Why would I? Why was? It, why is that strange? Because what you know, these obstacles. What do you think about as obstacles? Like when I said we were born in a human life, it's kind of like we have. It's not like humans don't have obstacles. We have plenty, <laughs> plenty of obstacles to awakening, right? But it's a little different from being born in a hell realm. And you can imagine in our own psychological makeup and what worlds we swirl through in a, in a even in a you know a flash of a, a finger snap, we can go from being in a god realm to a hell realm. Actually, there's like a direct like shoot from <laughs> 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 the god realm to the hell realm. Right? Everything is impermanent, even your godliness. Mm-hmm. Right. So being in a god realm, the causes and conditions that led to this feeling of like. Uh, Invincibility, you know, like walking on clouds, nothing can touch me. Just like that, something can happen, and you can be plunged instantly into a hell realm where there's no hope, where someone's, you know, shoving hot coals down your throat, where you feel burning, there's no escape. Complete, utter anguish can happen in one second. 
So as we swirl around these realms, think about the obstacles to awakening for somebody in the hell realm or for somebody in a hungry ghost realm. The hungry ghost realm is said to be the realm where uh, hungry ghosts or um, in Japanese the term is gaki, um, which is I think has been deemed a disparaging term because it's been used to refer to people who might be homeless. So they've changed the word. So we used to have a ceremony here called the Sagaki Ceremony, and it has been changed to Sejiki Ceremony because of the negative uh, connotation that was put onto actual human beings of, the, of Gaki. But imagine that a, a hungry ghost is, you can imagine, or you don't have to imagine, you can see some artistic renditions of hungry ghosts just on the outside of the zendo, on either side of these the, the foyer, this entrance. There are renditions of hungry ghosts. Now they're not very, um, they don't have as big as bellies as they usually are said to have. Normally a hungry ghost is a being that sometimes is depicted as a being with a very, very thin neck, very thin, pencil thin neck, and a huge belly because their need is great, but they have no way of getting what they need. The passageway is too narrow, and so they're always dissatisfied. Nothing can, nothing can satisfy them. So imagine the times when we feel this way, when we feel ourselves in that state of a hungry ghost, right? You can feel compassion to that being that feels that way. Now, how many of you have felt the hungry ghost, have been in the hungry ghost realm? <laughs> yes, universal, pretty much, right? Uh, uh, psychological state of nothing, nothing's going to help. Nothing can actually make it better, right? This feeling of despair. Now, it may not be a hell realm, a full-on, full-blown hell realm where there's co constant pain and suffering, but there's this unmet un, uh, longing that just can't ever be fulfilled, right? It's very hard to practice in that realm, right? One of the main practices that we've been talking about this practice period is the practice of putting self ahead of oneself. Putting, sorry, putting others ahead of oneself. <laughs> putting self in front of everybody. <laughs> 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 uh, wow, well, we know that. <laughs> um, so, so the opposite, right? We turn things around. This, uh, you know, a lot of our practice is this turning around, which is why we're doing this practice period. It's called it, on training, on this mind training. So we want to take this up as something that's going against our, our the grain of what a human being usually uh, may feel when they're you know, untrained. So these hindrances, when the ehi koso hotsagamon, Um, there's this, this wish, this prayer almost to Buddhas to please come and help remove the obstacles to my practice. Make it easier for me to practice, to, to walk on this path. Right? This path of cultivation of wisdom right? and compassion. So, I have a question. Yes. Are human beings, uh, well, do we exist? to satisfy the needs of the hungry ghosts? Is that the entire purpose 
of the human being's existence? No. No? I don't think so. No. What else is there? What is the purpose of a human being's life? Is that your question? Are we here just to satisfy the hunger of the hungry ghosts? You said it's difficult to live in this realm. In the human realm? Yes. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's difficult to live in this realm. Would you agree it's somewhat difficult to live in the human realm? You've got some nods. In a hungry ghost realm, I think it's probably even more difficult. Mm. In the hell realm, it's super difficult. It's almost like when you, when you fall into a human, uh, sorry, a hell realm or a hungry ghost realm, from what I can tell, it looks like your only option, one of your only options, even though there's a bodhisattva that, that dwells in those realms seeking to help beings escape it. But once you're in that realm, it seems like you just have to wait for your karma, your bad karma, to burn up because there's not much chance to practice. It's very hard to think of others when, when, when one is completely gripped in the terrors and suffering of the hell realm. And when one is gripped entirely in the hopelessness of the, the, uh, the hungry ghost realm. So in the human realm, we have good days and we have bad days, right? Sometimes we feel like, um, our altruistic energy just manifests of its own without our having to do anything. We just, the aspiration to be helpful, to be a kind and uh, welcoming individual comes naturally, right? It just comes up. But sometimes it doesn't come naturally. And we feel small-minded and tight. We have very little to give, right? And it's kind of back and forth, kind of like the weather these days. <laughs> Back and forth. Sometimes it's this way, sometimes it's that way. Last week in our, um, we did a retreat where we focused on the first of the 59 Lojong slogans, training in the preliminaries, and the four, um, I, don't know, I guess, Rich, uh, Rich, you call them remembrances. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the four remembrances, things to keep in mind, these attitudes that you can keep, keep coming back to. And the first one is the remembering that this life is precious, that being born into the human realm actually is very uh, auspicious for us because it's the easiest realm in which we can practice. When we're in a God realm, there's no need to, why would we need to practice? We have everything we want, everything's perfect, right? And as I mentioned, the hungry ghost in the hell realm, uh, it's too difficult to even think of practice. You're overcome and subsumed, consumed by pain and suffering. And the animal realm is, um, you know, there are stories, some of the Jataka st uh, tales, stories of being in an animal realm and being able to wake up or, or cultivate the, uh, the conditions for waking up. And then the jealous titans realm is, you know, you can imagine being caught up in jealousy and part <coughs> of mind, always seeking what you don't have, being really close to getting it but not quite, not quite good enough, 
how, how um, consuming that can be to be in that realm. So being born into this precious human life is quite, uh, it's, it's basically the best place we can be in the six realms. Right? The best realm for cultivating wisdom and compassion for awakening. The second remembrance is the certainty of our own death. There is a, uh, I was reading the news yesterday and I uh, came upon a story, a, a study, that I wanted to share. I found it really fascinating. It's going to come out next month, the study, in the uh, journal Neuroimage. And I want to tell you a little bit about this study. Because basically, what the study says, but the first line of the abstract of the study says, the human mind has an automatic tendency to avoid awareness of its own mortality. <laughs> and they tested this hypothesis that prediction-based mechanisms mediate death denial by shielding the self from existential threat. <laughs> Who knew? <laughs> <laughs> we, we all have experienced this to some degree, but here is a study that's coming out next month where they used a magnetoencephalography visual mismatch paradigm <laughs> to show that the brain's automatic prediction response to deviancy is eliminated when death words and self-face representations are paired but it remains present when other, face, other faces are shown. So basically what they did is they showed people a bunch of images of faces combined with words, right? And what they found was that the brain has this tendency to kind of turn off. It down-regulates when, when you pair a face, your own face, with a death word, like funeral. Like your brain just goes into a fog. Huh? Right? Fascinating, right? Yeah. Together, these results lay out for the first time a plausible neural-based mechanism of death denial. So when you when I read that, given that we've just gone through these uh, four remembrances and looking at this. You know, reflecting on the certainty of our own demise. It's like, well, right, the, so the deck is stacked, neurologically speaking, against our doing that. Yes, Mary? Is it necessarily, or is it just reflecting the denial? It just may be mirroring what we do, and mm -hmm. people who practice yeah. going through with thinking about their death and their, that, this, that they're ultimately not. <laughs> but this is going to happen. Right. Yeah. 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 This, this is this is the first of study of its kind. I think that it would be very interesting to see, like, if they took a bunch of long-term meditators, yeah. especially meditators who have done, you know, meditation on their own death and dying. Right. Yeah. To see if that if that same mechanism were at play in those cases. Yeah. Or for other forms of denial. Or yeah. Right. Fascinating. Anyway, so that was uh, that was quite yeah, I was quite struck by that study. And then the third and fourth of those remembrances, the third being 
reflecting on the fact that our, the fact of karma, that uh, that everything that we do, whether it is an action of in our bo- embodied action, using our physicality, using our mind, or using our voice, <coughs> our speech, that any action of body, speech, and mind will bear fruit, that there are consequences, that nothing can happen without consequence. And then the fourth, that living for the benefit of just oneself does not lead to happiness. That being self-concerned, self-absorbed leads to suffering. I have a question. Yes. <clears throat> I'm sure that you're familiar with the Heart Sutra. Yes. So, I want to know what it means when it says that there is no life and there's no death. There's no cleanliness and there's no dirt. What, do, what does that mean? Mm. That's a very good question. What does it mean, the Heart Sutra? How many of you are not familiar with the Heart Sutra? All right. At least I've heard of the Heart Sutra. Yes. <laughs> Understand completely, maybe, maybe not. The Heart Sutra is pointing to, um, again, pointing to this absolute truth. The inner, complete interconnection that's being saying it positively, but the Heart Sutra doesn't put it positively. It takes everything that we think to be true, all the distinctions that we make, all the dualities, birth and death, life and death, uh, dirt and cleanliness, yeah, and takes all of those and turns them upside down or inside out and removes the distinctions. Because ultimately, those distinctions are distinctions of the mind and not true, everlasting distinctions that exist outside of our conception. So, this first slogan, the training and preliminaries, focusing on these four remembrances, we we worked through them last week during our uh, one-day sit, and then we decided, we we just didn't decide, we are following along with the 59 slogans, the next five slogans are on the topic of generating absolute bodhicitta. So this is getting to the question of the Heart Sutra. What does the Heart Sutra mean when we chant no eyes, no ears, no nose, no suffering, no path, no knowledge? What does that mean? How do we generate, what does it mean to generate um, welcoming into our, our heart-mind, shunyata, and how do we not get uh, consumed by it? How many of you have had the experience of touching into uh, some what felt like emptiness, Touching into it a little bit, feeling like those distinctions drop away, those distinctions that normally govern us, but they've dropped away, and there's nothing but complete, utter spaciousness. 
what happens when you stay too long in that job. You, you start thinking about it. <laughs> You're wanting it not to go away. Sorry? You're wanting it not to go away. Yeah. Ah, wanting it not to go away. So and it's you, gone. Sorry? And it's gone. <laughs> as soon as that want arises, then you Yes. So in our 59 slogans, the first one being training in those preliminaries and including those four remembrances, the next four are devoted to the cultivation of our connection to our absolute bodhicitta, as opposed to relative bodhicitta. So bodhicitta, just taking a step back, bodhicitta in essence is to have a bodhi means awakening, chitta, uh, heart, heart-mind, so to develop the mind and heart of awakening for the benefit, for the benefit of all beings, without distinction. It's really important that it's without distinction. You don't get to choose, oh, I like these beings and not those beings, I want those beings' benefit, but those other beings, no. Those don't get my benefit. <laughs> don't get to do that with bodhicitta. It's actually to develop a this good or kind, friendly heart that has an aspiration or a wish that all beings are free from suffering and find happiness, without exception. And furthermore, the wish or the uh, embedded in that wish is that you don't want to cause harm, that there is no desire to cause harm. So is bodhicitta the, the sincere aspiration to arrive at that place, or is it the actual cultivate being in that place? That's a great question. So the ultimate, or the absolute bodhicitta, is kind of like it, does, it, it doesn't distinguish between self and other. There isn't beings and non-beings. In the absolute realm, there are th those distinctions don't don't come up, they don't arise. Actually, it's this, in absolute bodhicitta is this understanding that reality doesn't have those distinctions in, uh, inherent to it. Right? But relative bodhicitta is kind of, it's actually putting it into practice, which is harder than, than resting in the nature of emptiness. Right? To be actually, to put it into practice, to come up against this particular suffering being and see what happens to your own heart and mind. Do you turn away? Are you able to stay close? You know, and are you able to stay close to your turning away? Right? And even, even within relative bodhicitta, there are said to be two kinds. Of course, you can always, there's always more. <laughs> it's further divide things. But within relative bodhicitta, there's a distinction made between the aspirational relative bodhicitta and actualizing or um, apl applied yeah. relative bodhicitta. So there's the generating a wish, right, which you can do on your cushion. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then there's the getting off your cushion and going out and doing something and being there for someone right, and not turning away from suffering as you encounter it, which there are many, many uh, opportunities in a human life, in a one human day to encounter, right? Shantideva uh, 
who, uh, when we were talking about this, this practice period, we also talked about possibly doing a practice period devoted to Shantideva, who is also one of the Tibetan teachers that has been steeped in Lojong, in this aspect of training the mind. Um, but he, in talking about relative bodhicitta, he says, understand that, briefly stated, bodhicitta has two aspects, the mind aspiring to awaken and actual application. Just as one understands the difference between wishing to go and going on a journey, the wise should understand these two, recognizing their difference and their order. Right? So, the state of mind that has this wish, you know, you can think of that as being the aspirational aspect. Uh, one practice that we do that generates, that helps us develop that aspect of our relative bodhicitta is the practice of the Brahmaviharas, or the four immeasurables. When we sit down and do those meditation practices, which are generating loving kindness, generating compassion, karuna, sympathetic joy, and equanimity, and being able to generate those aspirations for oneself, for one's friends and loved ones, for neutral parties that you know don't have uh, either pleasant or unpleasant feelings towards and then more specifically people who are considered you know enemies or people who are difficult people to generate positive feelings towards right and you progressively starting with oneself you progressively go out to generating that wish for all beings including people who you don't really care for Right? There's this expression that uh, I think Suzuki Roshi said it quite a bit, but I have many memories of Yogi know, Steve Suki saying, you don't have to like that person, but you do have to love them. <laughs> and to know that distinction, like you don't have to have, liking something is like personal, yeah, likes and dislikes, right? But loving, true love, absolute love, is wishing for one's well-being, wishing deeply for their full awakening as a human being, regardless of whether you like them or agree with their politics or any of those things, right? To be able to rest in, may you be well, ultimately. We just chanted the, the um, so in our liturgy this morning, going from the hymn to the perfection of wisdom through the Shosanyo, the wish for taking away our hindrances, or the obstacles to awakening. And then the last chant we did was the loving kindness meditation. Right? Which asks for is this aspiration, developing this wish, you know, just speaking it. Even just even if we all you ever the only time you ever touch down to that is on Saturday morning when you come and chant the loving kindness sutra, it's still, right, it's planting that seed that can blossom. Without planting that seed, it may never come it may never uh, arise. So as we go forward in these slogans, I wanted to just touch down briefly, I'm running out of time, on these uh, training the mind in absolute bodhicitta. There are these four slogans, sorry, five slogans. The first one is regard all dharmas as dreams. Regard everything that happens, all dharmas, meaning all elements of one's experience, anything that you can see or touch or think of, is a dharma, <laughs> basically everything. Uh, regard all of them as dreams. 
This is very much in alignment with the message of the Heart Sutra, right? And don't cling, don't cling to them as being fixed, real entities, but as passing memories or uh, imaginations, right? Not to say that now we can dismiss them and say, oh, well, that's just a dream. It's not like making something into something that's unreal. It's just loosening the grip that we usually have when we grab onto things as being fixed, right? How many times have you been in a situation where somebody has, uh, you've gone into an argument with somebody and you, you know, there's this part that's not willing to let go in the middle of the argument, right? If that part let go, the argument would be over. I'm sorry. Are you trying to say that we should regard the Heart Sutra as a dream? Yes. Is that what you're saying? Yes. So all dharmas are dreams. All dharmas are dreams. So including the Heart Sutra. Yes. So in other words, sutra. we should not study anything. No. Because everything <laughs> everything would be a dream then, according to Dharma, right? Is that right? Everything is dreamlike. Dreamlike, but not real dreams. Well. Uh. <laughs> so only humans can dream and nobody else can dream, right? No, I don't think that would be true. I think I I think I've seen my cat dream. <laughs> yeah, true. but do we know how cat dreams? Do we know how other humans dream? <laughs> yes, but I know how I dream. I'm human. Is that right? I hope so. <laughs> I hope so too. <laughs> but I think that to say that we should regard the Heart Sutra as a dream, that is against the philosophy of Buddhism, isn't it? No. That's I don't exactly think so. what the Heart Sutra is saying. I think, yeah, I think that's exactly what. And, and looking back to uh, one of the greatest minds in looking at this topic is Nagarjuna, the Buddhist saint Nagarjuna, who spoke very eloquently about the distinction between the ultimate truth and the relative truth. And even with emptiness undermining all our, uh, you know, the emptiness undermining any fixed idea that we have, including our ideas about emptiness, which includes the Heart Sutra, so the Heart Sutra can't stand above itself. It has to apply equally to itself. Well, if it's a dream or a dreamlike, then why do I bother to study the Heart Sutra? That all my efforts are useless because I should regard it as a dream. Then why should I bother studying it? Because if you don't... What would happen if I don't? What do you think happens? I'm sorry? What do you think will happen? I don't know. You are the teacher, <laughs> aren't you? We find we have to be our own teacher, too. So well, if we don't study the Heart Sutra, then we might find ourselves falling into uh, reifying our, our beliefs, believing them to be true and everlasting, believing in ourselves <laughs> to be everlasting, fixed, without ability to change, which goes against the three marks of existence. But isn't Buddhism, uh, it's all about ever-changing reality? 
Yes. That there is nothing that is fixed. No. Everything changes forever. Including the Heart Sutra. <laughs> That's right. But it didn't say that it's a dream. No, but it's not. This, this slogan isn't saying it is a dream as an ontological fact. It's saying regard things as dreams as an epistemological fact or a, a way of working with it. Basically, it's a way of softening our usual grasp. So it's not to say, oh, everything is a dream, and that becomes the new truth. It's an invitation to regard things as dreamlike, as not fixed, rather than being fixated on them. That's not what the Heart Sutra said. The Heart Sutra said that it is the ultimate reality, that if you study the Heart Sutra, you would understand the ultimate truth. So how can I regard it as a dream when it's said that it's the ultimate truth? I think the ultimate truth itself, it has has to apply equally to itself. There's there's nothing that is fixed. Actually, the Heart Sutra, basically any conceptuality that we have, any conception is just partial. It doesn't get to the, the whole truth. And the Heart Sutra is, you know, maybe the, the pith of the Heart Sutra, right? But still we have to conceive of it. Well, the Heart Sutra said that everything is fake. Everything is fake. That's why there's emptiness. I think and I believe it. saying everything is like a dream. No. A dream is different from everything is fake. Right? No, no, I don't think so. I think, I mean, to say everything is fake is kind of like saying that it's non-existent at all. There's no way in which it exists. That's not true. Not even conventionally. I can have a dollar. It can be a fake dollar. But the dollar's still there. Isn't it true? That's true. Jacob? Well, I was just thinking, would it be helpful to say that uh, you're using words to describe something that's wordless? Yes. That's true. But you have to point in that direction. You know, it's like pointing the moon, but don't take the finger for the moon. Yes. Kind of thing. It's but but it's like you know, there's no thing. Why talk about it? But you have to talk. Well, we do, right? We bumble around in our way, right? Again, that's why we hold things lightly, right? This idea that Norman, we talked about this in the class the other night. How Norman keeps coming back to hold it lightly, hold everything lightly. Don't hold it in this rigid way where you're grasping and you're clenching, creating something that's that is fixed and real with a capital R, right? Or truth with a capital T. Mm. So let me continue. We have four more that I just want to mention in these uh, these slogans, these mind trains. <coughs> the second one of these ones that are generating absolute bodhicitta is to examine the nature of unborn awareness. Examine the nature of unborn awareness. Awareness that does not arise due to any conditions, but is present without being born and without dying. What does that mean? How do we examine that in our daily life? I had, in the class that we had the other night, I had suggested 
approaching this slogan as, uh, practically speaking, like what happens when you first wake up before form, forms arise in your consciousness, before you even open your eyes, before you have a sense of, oh, this is me and this is my day ahead of me, right? How many of you wake up and the first thing that happens is just like this bombardment of like your to-do list? <laughs> Some of you, yeah? The rest of you are very fortunate. <laughs> but in that state of like waking up but not being, and maybe this is also very similar to the dream, examining things as a dream, right? Because you don't necessarily know if you're still dreaming or if you're now awake into this conventional world. But what is the awareness? Where is awareness? What is awareness? Before something shows up to be aware of. Some thing arises before thingness. Yes, Mary. Well, it, it, yes, it, it doesn't have any boundaries. It's noticing the part of us that notices. It's always been with you. The part that notices has always been there. Yeah. That you can remember. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it, it doesn't have the form of the conceptual self, the conventional self. Right. right. So Things aren't so neatly put in their boxes. Yeah. Before they, you know, before that, the ego mind arises and starts labeling things and checking things off the list. So that's the second of these absolute bodhicitta slogans. The third is to self-liberate even the antidote. <laughs> self-liberate even the antidote. Some of you are nodding. What does that mean? That's the one I'm working on today, actually. Yeah. <laughs> I'm struggling with it, really. Um, but I think that it's sort of, to reference Norman, it's sort of burned the prior to away, in, in essence, that there is, uh, that, um, that uh, there isn't an easy solution, I suppose. Or, uh -huh. I, you know, there isn't, uh, there isn't an end-all, fix-all that, oh, you know, sort of the prior to sort of had you in a dream world and, and an existential sort of uh, space between your consciousness. This is kind of saying, bring it back to Earth, that there, yeah. is, there isn't a magical... Quick fix. Yeah. yeah. That's kind of what I'm trying to process. Yeah, yeah. Self-liberate even the antidote. Jim. <clears throat> Maybe it's waking up to the suffering of the way we cling to the one thing that worked before. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Why is this not working anymore? I just, you know, chanted that drone a couple times and it got better. Now it's not. Right. So self-liberate, the antidote, is even the thing that we think of as being the thing that's going to save, save us. Like, let go of that. How do you let go of that, too? It's scary, right? Especially if it's a tried and true path that we've done and we can, like, pull out our handy tool, right? Remember, Avalokiteshvara Bodhisattva, with a thousand arms and a thousand hands, each with a, a different implement to help, right? It's like, okay, here's the antidote. No, Avalokiteshvara, here's another one, here's another one, right? You've got many, many to try, right? And self-liberating, even the antidote, maybe fundamentally means maybe without any of those, maybe all of those antidotes. Like, Chogyam Trungpa sometimes talks about hope as a dirty word, right? He, he uh, um, encourages hopelessness, actually, <laughs> in this interesting way. <coughs> this way of hopelessness. Like, don't think of like hope. Actually, just stay right there in your hopelessness, 
If you can connect to your hopelessness truly, then what need is there for hope? Right? If you can be there within a lack of hope, within your own despair. If you can touch down, and Pima Chodron also talks about this as this open wound, right? this ultimate vulnerability that we all have, that sore spot, Chodron Trump calls it a pimple, <laughs> right? that hurts, it hurts to touch. If we can stay close to that, then we're not thinking of like the antidote, looking for the solution. We're just going to rest in being with what is. Right? Very powerful slogan. The fourth is rest in the nature of Elia, the essence, the present moment. Rest in the nature of Elia. So Elia is one of the uh, eight consciousnesses. It's the eighth consciousness in the Yogacara system. The Elia Vijnana, which is the uh, storehouse consciousness or the ground of all of our experiences. If you can imagine such a thing. It's not a real thing. I don't think that Vasubandhu uh, uh, and Asanga meant for it to be uh, viewed as there is an actual consciousness called this. It's just a way of, of working with the different functions of, of mind and meditation. But this resting in the nature of the laya, or this ground in which all of our experiences is somehow the seeds for everything are planted. So this fundamental essence or ground, which everything comes out of. So to rest in the nature of it, again, this is all in terms of generating this absolute bodhicitta, generate this um, direct insight into the absolute nature of things, which is no nature, no fixed nature. And then, because I don't want to finish, the, the last one I'll mention is uh, the sixth slogan, which is the fifth of the absolute, developing absolute bodhicitta, which is, in post-meditation, be a child of illusion. In post-meditation. So after you've gotten them up from sitting, be a child of illusion. We were talking about this a little bit last week, what it means to be a child of illusion. I think that this is kind of like beginner's mind. This is what comes up to me, of course, being in the lineage that we're in. But what comes up is this, this aspect of, of don't be an expert. Like, how do you uh, stay close to the wonder and curiosity of like, oh, I've just gotten up from my sit, and now I'm moving from my relative uh, aspirational bodhicitta into activity. How can I remain open and curious about who I am, who you are, what's helpful, what's not helpful? How can I regard, not in the same way that you're regarding all dharmas as dreams, but in this other way of open curiosity? What's helpful? This is moving us further, moving us out of within our own meditative experience and into post-meditation, right? And then the next uh, next slogans that come are specific to developing relative bodhicitta, which is kind of where the rubber meets the road, right? When we get up from our cushion, we have this aspiration. It's like, how do we put it into practice and fail, <laughs> which we will, 
and fail well, like, and keep coming back. So that is what I wanted to bring up today in the trajectory of this practice period, and to say that we are working along uh, in the class and in the practice period gatherings on cultivating these slogans, as well as taking up other practices like generating loving kindness and compassion. We'll get to equanimity and sympathetic joy as well. And um, in a few weeks, we do a two-week, uh, sorry, two-week, oh, we nice, isn't it? A two-day, uh, two, well, it's actually spread over three days. We'll be doing a weekend retreat here where we'll be focusing on absolute and relative bodhicitta in particular. So a lot of zazen, but also some guided meditation. In particular, we'll be going into some of the practices of sending and receiving on the breath, otherwise known as Tonglen. So, um, yes, the second, I think it's the second week of November. Second weekend of November. November. Will be the ninth through the 8th to the 10th, yes. I hope you can all join us. And uh, we're not sure yet whether we're going to have a public program that day or whether it will be closed for the retreat alone, but we'll keep you... Uh, abreast of what happens with that. And uh, another aspect another aspect of all of this that I mentioned today, which is the in the six realms, the hungry ghost realm, um, this next, not next week, the week after next, we have our big Seijiki ceremony where we'll be um, ceremonially opening ourselves and our world to uh, hungry ghosts to spirits that have no, uh, no place to go, to ones that are still caught in between. And we open up, we, we create a whole altar just for them. And for any departed ancestors, especially those who have passed in the last year, but any departed ancestor that we honor, our departed ancestors, as part of the ceremony, we string the names of our departed ancestors in the room and we dedicate the merit and virtue to their uh, their well-being, and then we let go of those. So we call them forth, and then we dismiss them as part of the ceremony. And then afterwards, we'll have a reception. Um, if you feel like bringing something to that, please go ahead and sign up. If you're if you're going to come at all, please sign up. We're trying to get accurate headcount so we know how much food to prepare for the reception afterwards. It'll be a dinner, and um, we hope to see you. As human beings, we have this ability to do this. And I can't imagine hungry ghosts having the ability to put on a big ceremony. But we, as human beings, we get to do it. So I hope to see you. Thank you very much.